0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to
1: Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, June 9th, 2017, and this week we're going to flash back to a show we did in march of 2008 with the dean of disaster restoration mr marty king unfortunately marty has passed on since then but we're very proud here at iaq radio to have a recording of that interview and to keep it around for as long as possible so people can continue to learn from the legend himself mr marty king with no further ado Here's our show.
0: IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's j o n d o n.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com.
2: Martin L. King, Certified Restorer ASA is the Dean of Disaster Restoration and is the RIA Technical Director and author of RIA's Guidelines for Fire Damage and Smoke Damage Repair. He developed and teaches the Certified Restorer and Contents Restoration courses and provides technical support to all of the RI members. He has more than 30 years of actual field experience in restoration and damage repair. He is an RIA-certified restorer and an accredited senior appraiser in the American Society of Appraisers. His credits include more than 200 published articles on damage restoration and estimating. He has given many lectures, seminars, and provides technical support for contractors, appraisers, museum conservators, attorneys, and insurance professionals. Thank you, Marty. Good afternoon. Uh, let's Good thanks. Yep. Let's start with the background. How did you get into this crazy business? You know, what did you do before?
3: Well, like most people that ended up in this business, there was nothing in my life that prepared me for it prior to that. I uh, I had in my back of my mind that I might be a writer someday, so that meant that you have to log all sorts of strange experiences. So I did everything from driving a cab to uh, working as a bartender to uh, working as a reporter for the Washington Post. I uh, just did a lot of different things and finally ended up in Washington in the carpet and upholstery cleaning business with my brother Ben. That was back in 1961. We, we decided that we would establish ourselves as the Washington area's most exclusive and expensive textile company, and not too long after we started, we were asked to handle a fire, uh, residue from a fire, someone who had traveled extensively in the Orient, and so we, we did that job using our knowledge from the dry cleaning business in which both of us had been raised, and um, decided that there was really no point in cleaning carpets. And then $150 a job when we could do fire damage repair for $10,000 a job. So we immediately changed directions and decided that we would do insurance work. And then uh, that was a rather long process learning about the industry then because it really didn't exist then. Uh, but we got established and eventually uh, ended up with... Um, a rather successful business, which eventually we sold and went our ways. Right. And I guess that's the short, uh, short version.
2: Well, I, I, just to follow up, how did you gain this vast and broad knowledge? I mean, you know, you started out in textile cleaning, but in order to do fire damage, you have to know about structure, you know, building structural components and how buildings are put together, and and so on and so forth. You know, did you take any special training or? Do research or on-the-job training, or all those things, or how did that happen?
3: Well, I'd had I'd had some training in chemistry, microscopy, and uh, physics at the Rochester Institute of Technology, where I got an associate's degree after I had my economics degree from GW in Washington D.C., and that uh, that prepared me. For some aspects of fire damage repair, but most of what I learned, and I have this in common probably with 90% of the people in the business, I learned by doing, by making mistakes, uh, eventually did construction. We had one advantage in that initially we didn't have any employees, so everything we did ourselves, and that's an excellent way to learn. Uh, And then I guess The rest of the spaces would be filled in by the fact that I have a natural curiosity about how things work and why things happen. So that I felt like it was necessary to fill in some of the unknown questions about fire damage and their effect on structures, uh, simply because the information wasn't available, Uh, Being a rat turn of mind, I started investigating things from a little more formal point of view. And Of course, I started writing about what I learned fairly early, and in order to write about something, you have to know at least a little bit more than the person who's reading the article. So um, I started preparing uh, for articles. I guess I can't say there's a straight line to where I ended up, but uh, somehow...
1: That's where I am. Okay. Well, Marty, how did you get started in the, uh, I know you're doing a lot of active work with associations, and and in particular the RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, and their predecessor, Association, ASCAR, the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration. We have the acronym police here, Marty, so I have to try and uh, spell things out. How did you become affiliated with um, ASCR back when uh, they were first starting up, I guess?
3: Uh, when when we started, uh, the association was the National Institute of Rug Cleaning. Okay. And the first presentation I ever made, and it must have been back in 1962 or 63, at a, a National Institute of Rug Cleaning Convention in Florida, and I talked about water damage and tried to influence carpet cleaners in the possibility that water damage might be a lucrative field, and I was almost hooted off the stage, <laughs> because at that time, on location cleaning uh, was sort of a back alley practice. These people all had large rug plants. Uh, they were sort of the fat cats of the industry, and uh, for example, after every convention, half of the people's convention would take off on a a month-long cruise that <laughs> was organized by the association. Well, uh, I was in the National Suit Rug Training and decided with my brother that we needed some representation. We needed somehow to earn respect uh, and be identified as an industry, so we started the National Institute of Fire Restoration, the NIFR. And we ran it for about two years, had maybe 45, 50 members. People were very enthusiastic. We found out that there were people in different parts of the country that were interested in this and were doing it, but they just weren't communicating. So we started the National Fire Restoration, and after about two years, I realized that this was a for-profit corporation, I realized that I couldn't run a business and run a trade association at the same time, so we turned it over to Bob Coleman, who then ran the National Institute of Road Cleaning, and he formed an organization called the Association of Interior Decor Specialists, of which the National Institute of Fire Restoration was one division, huh. uh, and a very weak minority of voices, as a matter of fact. But from that point, we started giving classes. I started giving classes for the association. Uh, all the time we were by that time I think on location cleaning uh, had become established as a reasonably respectable business and the large rug plants were starting to fade. Uh, they, they virtually don't exist anymore except for the few cases but they're dinosaurs now but then they were the big players. So, uh, of course, A.I.D.S. Uh, the Association of Interior Decor Specialists, had the misfortune of having AIDS as its acronym, uh. so, uh, that was changed to the Association of Interior Decor Specialists. Um, and we eventually changed the name of the National of Fire Restoration to broaden it to make the National Institute of Disaster Restoration, uh, which I think it was up until the time everything got merged into RIA. So that's sort of a history of the association, and I sort of tagged along at every stage as with <laughs> all the various changes of identification. Uh, I was sort of the one constant name that was there and I continued uh, to participate and as I say, to continue to try to fight for a seat at the table for restoration and it took a few years uh, and many, many slights. It took a few years before we could talk the association into letting us spend our own money for advertising and things of that sort, which eventually they did and of course we started the advertising in. Planes magazines for the certified restores and all that sort of thing. But speaking of cert, yes, that brings it up to current memory.
2: You know, speaking of certified restore, you know, I'm number 38, I'm a double digit one, and now I know that they're in the triple digits and there's probably approaching no, we're, six we're almost up to
3: 600. Up
2: to 600. I know that, Martin. I know why I took the program. I wanted to learn, I wanted to. Uh, you know, be the best that I could possibly be. But what were you thinking when you conceived the program? And really, is the program bigger and smaller than you thought it would be and more or less encompassing than you initially imagined? Well,
3: we started it because there was a feeling that uh, restoration was becoming better known and there was a sudden influx of carpet cleaners into restoration and they were saying we're restorers and uh, or restorators or whatever they wanted to call it and so the experienced members of then uh, the Association of Interior Specialists or, or National Institute of Fire Restoration said we wanted to have a way to distinguish ourselves who were experienced and serious practitioners from all of the wannabes who were sort of pounding on the doors. So that was when we started the certification program, the CR program, and the intention was to make it as difficult as possible so that it would be recognized as a designation that was worth something. Uh, I I simply created it uh, out of the whole cloth uh, on the basis of what I thought we needed to know and it just grew from that point uh, we never wanted it to be very large, classes have always been small, we limited it to a maximum of 22 people uh, and we would do it two or three well, one or two times a year uh, and the idea was to keep it small, keep it special so that those people who had attained the designation, I uh, felt that they had something worthwhile.
2: Indeed they have. And the usual
3: usual refrain after people become CRs is it was very difficult, it was more difficult than we thought it would possibly be. And the only thing that we ask is that you never make it any easier.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well let's talk a little bit about fire restoration guidelines. Last week, Marty, we had um Tom Yacobelis on, who is with uh, Ducts and their division of Belfor, and he was talking about the fact that you know there aren't real good restoration guidelines for fire damage. But I'm seeing a book cliff's holding called Guidelines for Fire and Smoke Damage Repair, and uh, I'm just curious how did how did you determine what to include and what not to include in that document?
3: Well, we decided, or I decided that it would be directed to three audiences, the homeowner, the insurance adjuster, and the damage repair contractor. So that meant that it would have some things in there that were rather elemental and uh, directed to the, explaining to the property owner how the process worked. Uh, Then there were the areas for the insurance adjuster that related to insurance And finally, there was the section for the damage repair contractor, and I've never felt that it's possible to have precise procedures for every possible situation because there's so many different situations that you end up with thousands of procedures. So I decided that we would leave that part open-ended, spell out the vulnerabilities of different products, different surfaces, and also bring some standards into play, uh, standards that could be verified.
1: Uh, so it was like a performance practice. standard?
3: So, for example, we do One of the important things was the question of well when is something that has suffered smoke exposure, when it is when is it sufficiently clean uh, to paint, I see. And I had a proposal, an idea. It was we sent draft copies of the guidelines out for peer review, and we got suggestions back. And Cliff was one of the prominent contributors to that process. And I think it was almost between Cliff and myself that we worked out the process for determining whether a surface was ready to be painted or whether it needed more cleaning.
2: I think you give me far too much credit.
1: <laughs> but. What year did this originally come out?
3: The idea originally was uh, an idea of uh, I think it was Barry Swidler who looked over guidelines that had been produced by another in another industry and said I wonder if we can have something like just uh, damage repair and I said that I would do that.
1: Yeah, this is the second and, uh, one that we're looking at. Here. That's
3: that's basically how it how it happened.
1: Well the second edition's two thousand seven, uh was there a, a much earlier version as well?
2: Oh yeah, there there was and I, I, I would suspect um I don't know. What do you think, Marty? Two thousand three, two thousand
1: four. Okay, and this is available through the Restoration Industry Association. Right. It's, it's okay, a, it's a fabulous document. I think I think what Tommy yeah, was ref- about three
3: years between the finished version, which should take a while to get online, and uh, the second edition, and probably before long we'll be coming out with a third edition.
1: Well let's let's just get the name of it out for for the listeners. It's Guidelines for Fire and Smoke Damage Repair and it's the second edition and uh, you can get it through the Restoration Industry Association. Yeah,
2: ab- absolutely. I just wanted to make one correction. You know, Tommy last week, you know, mentioned that there weren't a lot of standards for dealing with fire damage ductwork, not not fire damage. I oh, okay. I'm sure that he's pretty familiar with this particular That's... document. Thank you. Marty, what I'd like to do is shift gears and You know, you've done some legendary work product that, you know, documents that you've written for the association over the years. And what I'd like to do is just take a couple of these and just mention the name of the document and have you kind of tell me what you were thinking or what you were charged with, you know, when you put this document together. First of all, there's a document called Emergency Tips. You know, what what were you thinking about and what was the responsibility when you put that one together?
3: That was intended to be a promotional brochure for our members. It was printed with the space for them to put their own logo name and address on as uh, a folder mailer. And it was designed for the consumer to advise on emergency procedures that the homeowner or property owner could take after fire damage, water damage, and vandalism, I think, were the three principle. Right.
2: It, it gave them, like, do's and, and uh, Yeah. You know, what to do, what not to do. What about something called the Homeowner's Bill of Rights for Insurance Repair? Yeah,
3: well, the Homeowner's Bill of Rights uh, had its inception at a time long ago. Uh, I guess it was probably in the 70s. When insurance companies, uh, it was a period of, of recession, uh, there was a lot of unemployment, and insurance companies were cashing out claims. And they were cashing out claims uh, a lot less than they would have had to have paid if work were to be done by professionals. So we decided that it would be a good idea to have a document I would explain to the property owner that they didn't have to let themselves be bullied by the insurance adjuster. And the document was produced. It was uh, it by some insurance adjusters. They agreed that it was absolutely accurate. There was nothing they could find any fault with. And then the members got cold feet. And they said, oh, this is going to offend the insurance industry. So they decided to retract it and it didn't see the light of day for a number of years, maybe 10 or 12 years after that. Uh, We've reintroduced it recently, not as a homeowner's bill of rights, but as suggestions for property owners and uh, it's presented in a little more, uh, a little softer terms. Uh, in the form of questions rather than of statements. And uh, something something may be done with it, but essentially it outlines what insurance companies state in the policy, but the property owner doesn't really understand because they don't read the policies, or if they do read the policies, you don't get the significance of it unless they have a fire. So uh, we tried to spell these things out so they would understand them and be able to stand up for their own rights the rights that they really have paid for as part of the insurance policy uh, i don't think the homeowners bill of rights or whatever we call it is ever going to be very popular with the insurance industry
1: <laughs> no. well how do people get a copy of that marty
3: you can get it through ria
1: through ria is there a, a cost for it or is it a free free publication
3: uh, I think the RIA is sort of not in a mode of giving things away. Okay. Anymore. Well, so there, there may if it wasn't published in the magazine there may well be a charge for that.
2: I think well, you yeah. could also get it from a member. Uh, as well. You know, member, oh, you know, I think most members would have them and, you know, be willing to, to give them out. And I think that there were a couple of really interesting concepts that were bold that Martin, you know, introduced into the document. And, you know, one was I think people are stunned when they have fire damage. And one of the things that it would point out in that document that is that they need to react to it and tell them that they really need to do something. They're not supposed to sit there. They need to be reactive. And I think some other things that I, I remember being in the document were competitive bids. You know, a lot, a lot of times you wreck your car, you have damage in your house. The insurance company tells you to go get two bids, three bids. It doesn't say three bids in there. It's not in the policy, but yet they would tell you that it was. Or they say we're only going to pay the lowest price. And that's not in the policy either. And I think these are really important concepts that Martin you know, put into that document, brought out for the industry, gave to the homeowner so that, you know, they had a document that, and I mean, the policy was written by the insurance company. We just needed to have someone who would interpret it in, you know, a fair and a fair and responsive way. Well, that's pretty good, Martin. What do you? I mean, you're probably one of the most mature. I would call you a mature guy uh, for working in the restoration <laughs> business. And I'm wondering uh, hey, if
3: I'm not mature, I have a real
2: problem. I understand. Well, I, I guess the question is, um, do you know where this concept of uh, ten and ten? came from, and you were involved in this white paper, uh, you know, and I'm just wondering if you can comment on some of these opinions expressed in this white paper with regard to 10 and 10, and give us a little history of 10 and 10.
3: Yeah, well, the 10% over 10% profit has been around as long as I've been in the business, and I started in the business in
1: 1961. Okay, so can I uh, let me yeah, just ask I you- was- a Quick question, Mori. So, this is what restorers can get. I'm, I'm just trying to clarify for people that aren't familiar with the restoration industry. This is what people can, uh, the people who are doing the restoration can charge 10% for, for overhead and 10% for profit, correct?
3: That's true. If you're doing contract, you're getting construction principally. In restoration, we usually went by the unit prices that we charged
1: okay
3: always adequate so the idea of 10 and 10 is that that was the consideration for coordinating different trades the idea being that you're a contractor you would have the work done by various subcontractors and you would charge their prices supposedly and you which you could then mark up 10% for overhead and 10% for profit. And that worked very nicely if you're doing a $5 million building project. But if you're doing a $5,000 restoration project, that's ludicrous. I see. But somehow it became as much a part of damage repair and insurance repair, you know, as. The Pledge of Allegiance is to America. I mean, it's there. <laughs> There's no law that says it has to be there, it's just that it has to be there. <laughs> so, uh, but that wasn't a major problem because at that time, contractors had a fairly liberal sway in setting their own prices or defining scope. So, Uh, If you had something that the markup wasn't adequate for, you had ways of dividing it or splitting it into different processes and charging for each process. So ultimately, you ended up with a reasonable profit. None of this was ever used to extort extraordinary profits. These were just procedures that you had to apply in order to realize a normal profit. Now, to give you an idea of how inadequate that is, in remodeling, the rule of thumb is that everything gets marked up 50%. If it costs you a dollar, you sell it for a dollar and a half. Well, that's not 10 and 10. That's 20 or 30 plus 10 and 10. So, the damage repair contractor really ends up with a great disadvantage by having to present the prices in a format that's dictated by the insurance company, because that same remodeler who marks everything up 50% doesn't break down every room and every closet and every hallway on a square-foot basis and charge a unit price for that. The painter gives him a bid of... $5,500, $5,500, and that's the bid for that job is $5,500. But in insurance work, in order to make the whole process comprehensible to someone who doesn't know anything about it, they, that is the insurance adjuster, they decided that they would divide things into square footage so that, for example, if you're going to paint a closet, the price might be $21.73. Well, guaranteed it's never going to cost $21.73 exactly, but the hope is that over the entire project, there's enough so that it'll pay for the pain. Uh Often it is not. So uh, the 10 in 10, which is imposed on top of unit prices, no one complained very much about until computerized estimating came on the scene and insurance companies started dictating every single unit price and they started permitting only items that were listed in their exactivate inventory and that of course brings us to the white paper which was in response to the Use of Xactimate as a tool in which the contractor was increasingly being scrutinized and being held to artificial standards with no wiggle room. Well, then it became essential that if you couldn't mark up your unit prices within the body of the estimate, you had to get an adequate overhead and profit figure on the bottom. Uh, And it's been pretty well established. We established in the paper that the standard overhead alone, not overhead and profit, standard overhead alone, is around 26 percent. Okay. So that meant that if you prepared your estimates strictly in accordance with the insurance guidelines or the insurance requirements and marked it up, 10 percent overhead and 10 percent profit, you're guaranteed to lose somewhere between 10 and 12% on every job you ever get, hmm. which no one can stay afloat very long doing.
1: But they could make it up in volume. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do, do you see this changing at all?
3: Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know where it's gonna go because there are a lot of downside things going on. One is the economy. Uh, an upside thing is that after Katrina, state legislatures are getting a little more involved in insurance, and insurance regulation has always been a state matter, not a federal matter. Which is why insurance companies have been able, with impunity, to dictate costs and essentially act in restraint of trade that would put any other industry behind bars in a nickel in a minute. Hmm. The insurance industry is able to operate with an exemption.
1: I got you. I so see. Martin, what we're so going to do at this point. federal
3: government uh, formally assigned all insurance regulation to the states. Okay. And now, this... so far as how the future goes, I've, uh, I, I see it changing, uh, not the least of which is the insurance companies discovering that if they squeeze hard enough and completely disregard the well-being of their insureds, then it's possible for them to realize an underwriting profit. This up until fairly recently. No insurance, property insurance companies ever did. They always made their money on the return on their invested float, which is the funds that people have put in but have not. Taken out as claims yet, but then uh, some insurers discovered. I think AIG perhaps was the first one that, well, let's make a profit on our underwriting, and so then the whole complexion of insurance changed. So uh, I'm not. I really don't have a crystal ball as to where it's going to go. I think people are going to become more and more aggressive in the way they treat insurers, I think uh, restoration contractors are going to be more confrontational uh, with insurance companies, and in fact, they start to behave in a manner similar to public adjusters.
1: Oh, that's an issue we're going to have to talk about a little bit later, Marty.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. What we're going to do now, Marty, is we're going to stop. It's a little over halftime, and... Uh, Go ahead, take a break, get a glass of water, and so on and so forth. We're probably going to bring you back in about two or three minutes. Uh, Hang on one second.
0: Uh. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers, feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, WolfSense.com. IAQ Marquee Sponsors are... John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J O N D O N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. At Legends hyphen enviro.com that's legends hyphen ahead.
2: the commissioner of the ria's competitive educational events pete Kinsigli. pete we got
1: you on the line
4: how you doing guys all
1: right commission the commission is back how are you pete
4: yeah, i'm doing great joe you got you got my wide world of sports commission music <laughs> there it is man
1: pete how about a little uh Overview of how things went at the conference and maybe a Donny Brook status report I know a lot of our listeners right. uh, heard the Donnie Brook
4: before, before I jump into that I was making a couple notes of really enjoying uh, Martin's interview so far a couple things that either corrections or little add-ons I want to make to a couple things that were discussed in reference to the uh, the guidelines the fire guidelines what was uh, there's also a special version for the United Kingdom and I know that you do have international callers that uh, that call in and also download the podcast so um, that that uh, that initiative was uh, was headed up by Billy Lakin long past president and long-term member of the association and very active in the CR program so it was put into an Anglo version um, the other thing the, the discussion that you were talking about in reference to the homeowner Bill of rights what happened with that for the purpose of the listeners is um, what Patty Harmon, the director of communications did is a Took that document, which, like Martin said, will probably, no matter how pleasantly it's worded, will always uh, (laughs) not be too well received by the insurance industry. The association has created a document called "After the Disaster: The First 24 Hours," and basically, what they did with the uh, the the base of Martin's original document on the uh, the the Bill of Rights is they turned it into a frequently asked questions document. And it's very not only is it more insurance friendly, it's very consumer friendly. And Cliff was right many of the of the members do uh have the documents they uh put their name and phone number on there use it for promotional purposes but i also believe and i'm not 100% sure in this but i do believe it's also posted on the RAA website and i think this was uh kind of in um, uh a lot of the post katrina and a lot of the you know those kind of events or actually with the california fires from last year is when i think it got put up because a lot of uh general public were calling in so that that's um point important piece now, in reference to the white paper, and you just kind of finished that discussion up, and this was something I was going to cover during my commission report, and I might as well just get this out on the table now. The actual um, white paper was officially released by the association at our recent convention two weeks ago in uh, Grapevine, uh, Dallas, Texas, and the actual name of the document is called "Cost Accounting Issues for Damage Repair," and it's a um, very nice uh, p- uh, published document, which is being serving as a white paper. We we've We've released, um, I think, a small amount, like maybe a couple of hundred, and primarily we think that it's going to be purchased by uh, restorers and uh, industry insiders, if you would, but it really is available for purchase by anybody who would want it. And what we're hoping with the initial purchase group is that they'll serve as kind of the first uh, uh, industry peer review group on the paper to get more significant uh, feedback. So that can be purchased by, um, I think you probably have to uh, call RAA, Headquarters to purchase that. I'm not sure if we have it up on the website. And um, now to kind of segue in to the uh, to my report um, on the association activities. Um, we just recently completed our convention, um, March 11th to the 15th um, at the Gaylord Texan Resort, it was outstanding conventions As a matter of fact, um, uh, headquarters tells me we've had the best attendance um, that that the association's had in the last five years. The two outstanding keynote presentations, and just to give your listeners a little bit of a feel of kind of where the big picture is going for the industry, we had um, we had one lady that gave a tremendous report on how to create a Latino-friendly workplace. Uh, very informative presentation, and of course, um, you know, in the construction trades and a lot of related IAQ-type businesses, uh, the work that much of the labor force and a lot of the skilled labor comes from uh, the Latino community. So that was uh, terrific. We also had a second keynote speaker that talked about. Um, Generational studies and, and uh, really gave a lot of insights on the different thought processes that separate how baby boomers think and the Gen Xers and the more recent generations. And this is something that uh, that uh, employers, customers, customer service people need to know and recognize when they're dealing with the changing demographics really of our society. Um, from a technical aspect, um, uh, Glenn Feldman. I want to give Glenn a big thank you from uh, his IAQA report last week on the show. He talked about the. Release of the first ever uh, rug cleaning standard in the industry, and that is RIA standard. The technical title of it is called the Industry Guide and Recommended Practice for Rug Cleaning, probably just referred to as the rug standard or rug cleaning standard. that document again. I'm not sure if it's on the website yet, but certainly you could call RAA headquarters. It's primarily a document that's going to be designed for people in the business, but I would imagine that uh, some customer service organizations and large property management firms and people that have something to do with rug cleaning would probably want to have that in their resource documents. Um, uh, and Jeff Jones uh, gave a terrific presentation uh, and previewed that document um, at one of the uh, rug cleaning uh, uh, general uh, one of the rug cleaning sessions during the convention. The environmental uh, conference uh, portion of the event, if you would, uh, uh, headed up by uh, Dan Greenblatt, who's the head of that council, uh, had some uh, tremendous uh, pr- presentations there. And uh, Tommy Acabellas, last week's uh, guest speaker, was uh, was one of the did one of the sessions, and um, they w- were very well attended. Now, from my perspective, I was involved in helping prepare the restoration uh, portion of the program, and uh, as the commission, I, I oversaw two two. Uh, Two of the Donny Brooks. One of the Donny Brooks uh, actually came to an end, which uh, the final round of our pricing and scoping debate um, was a tremendous debate that debated the differences between um, the traditional method of the running rate process versus the new uh, performance-based model or fixed cost model. Um, and I would think sometime in the future we may have some uh, some further presentations on those storylines. Um, the other, uh, and, and actually as a footnote to that, uh, during that event is when I actually did a preview and introduced the uh, cost accounting document because a lot of the issues there really are, are interrelated. Um, the second uh, Donny Brook really kicked off. It's in its second round, and... Uh, this really lends to the discussion that you just finished up with, Martin, as far as insurance company practices, and, and, uh, and I think uh, the second part of the interview will probably delve a little bit more into this. But it's debating the pros and the cons of, of a, a restorer creating a focus between either characterizing themselves as an end-user marketeer or a program, an insurance program vendor loyalist. And, it's the, and the, the gist of the debate is not to be an either-or, but how would a company, you know, kind of position their, their, their company in the minds of the general public and the people they're marketing to? And we have two tremendous teams there, um, Sam Bergman and Dan Chavez, that are taking the end-user position, and, part, and they've written a position paper, which is, uh, can be looked at in the special landing page of the Donnybrook, uh, um, the Donnybrook discussion on the RAA website. And uh, their main contention is that it potentially creates a conflict of interest, that you can't serve two masters. Of course, the opposing viewpoint is taken up by Craig Kirshenmayer and Dave Osborne, and, um, and they wrote a terrific paper about uh, you know, how they look at working for ethical insurance companies and third-party vendor programs. So the debate is going to come to a head this, this fall uh, at our fall conference. And um, for the listeners that uh, keep notes of that stuff, the fall conference this year is November 18th to the 22nd, and it will be in uh, beautiful Hy- Hyatt Regency in the Baltimore Inner Harbor um, just as a footnote for uh, future upcoming REA events, next year's annual convention uh, always the second week of March. This will be our 64th year. We'll be in, in Palm Springs, California. We've we've been there a few times over the years. And next year's fall conference uh, will be in October, which is going to be in the uh, Hyatt Regency in St. Louis, very central location for people to come to. Um, the uh, I guess the only other uh, other comment I'd like to make. Gentlemen, before I turn it back over to in regards to my report, is it is a very special event um, which is coming up in uh, the beginning of May, May 8th and 9th, and it's going to be in Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of the Washington, D.C. area. And it's the first ever RAA Leadership Summit. It's a special invitation event only, primarily for uh, certified restorers, approximately 600 of the association, and uh, other select industry uh, special VIPs. And um, it's a two-day event um, which the associations rolled out to talk about leadership issues from, a, uh, uh, from the social sector, from a nonprofit um, perspective, and our executive director, Don Manger, has recruited some people from that portion of the industry that he's worked with over his career that are going to talk about, you know, the types of things that uh, can help move associations and nonprofit associations forward as, as you know, the, as the times change. um we're also going to have a, a talk uh, on um, legi- legislation legislative portion of uh, the program uh, that will talk about um, some of the stuff that I know you've had Joe Rigo on before and some of the, leg- the consumer legislation that, that, that he pioneered and crafted in Colorado, and there's a lot of interest in several other states around the country, so we're going to have a report on that. But the highlight of the event is going to be day two, which is going to be an open town hall-style meeting with the attendees that's going to talk about Martin King's uh, the legacy of the CR program, of which in my personal humble opinion is really going to be Marty, Marty's great, greatest legacy, is uh, really establishing the, what a professional restorer is. And um, we're going we're gonna to talk as a group um, as to uh, what the next level and what the next phase of the CR program. And we're going to have probably uh, out of that what we hope to see happen is have a special committee come together. And uh, and see where it's going to go. And we're just thrilled to that that uh, that Martin uh, is going to be able to be there. It's close to his home, and uh, that he'll be able to participate in that group with uh, so many of us that you know owe so much to him, and uh, and really appreciate everything that he's done and has continues to do. So uh, on that note, I guess that'll be a good segue point. I will turn it back over to you, gentlemen.
2: Thanks, thanks, Pete. Okay, good. We need our. Fire engine sirens there to bring Marty back. Marty, I think we'd like to get technical, uh, you know, for a couple of minutes. You know, what are the most common technical questions posted to you as technical director for RAA?
3: Well, <clears throat> I guess the two areas—I mean, technical areas—the uh, question is: we have a spill, or we have a condition and should I use ozone? Huh. It seems like everybody somehow has the idea that the first resort is always to apply ozone. And that is not my personal position on that so usually I have to explain why in this particular situation ozone is not a good idea. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the industry has changed a lot over time, and the character, the questions that people ask, has changed a lot over time. And uh, we're much more now involved in unusual situations. Um, that is, smoke in a some kind of a processing plant or a printing plant or uh, fairly common perils, but in unusual situations, and my assumption is that the reason we're not getting other types of calls is because people already know how to do that, (laughs) and so they don't have to call in. We also get a fair number of technical questions, and not really technical, but uh, problems uh, with bulky adjusters and how to explain the facts of life either to uh, a bulky adjuster or a customer who for some reason doesn't want to pay the bill. So, I guess if there's an area where growth is needed, it's in our members, RIA members, and people in the industry as a whole, uh, understanding a little more about business and contracts and operating in a much more formal and documentable manner. Uh, than they have in the past. So there are lots of questions that arise over estimating and uh, contracts.
1: Thank you. Marty, I, I want to go back to uh, something that came up earlier. I think it ties in with what Pete was saying, the, the public adjuster issue. If a family member of yours living in another state suffered a severe fire damage in their home, uh, would you advise them to just trust their insurance agent uh, or company, and adjuster, or would you advise them to hire a public adjuster?
3: I would advise them to call a CR and tell the certified restorer to call me. Okay. If this were a family member. All right. Um, yeah, there are circumstances into which I might suggest a public adjuster. Uh, certain insurance companies, I might almost suggest a public adjuster out of hand. <laughs> But for the most part, my experience with public adjusters uh, has been adversarial. And uh, I used to think that they all lied, cheated, and steal, stole. But um, my attitude has changed somewhat because as insurance companies have become more aggressive, as I mentioned in a recent article, uh we really have two extremes now, neither of which is very good for the property owner or very good for society as a whole. On the one hand, someone trying to exploit the claim to yield the greatest possible revenue, on the other hand, uh, the insurance company trying to restrict the claim way below what it ought to be uh, in order to preserve their profit margins. So... That puts the uh, ethical restorer in a difficult position because he really doesn't have any place to call home other than his own good judgment. And uh, somehow or other, that we're going to have to find a way to make that manifest. But the public adjuster in general, if it's not an inventory situation where their inventory services are essential, um... I personally don't have a brief for using a public adjuster. If you have a company that is rigid and clearly uh, not looking after their responsibilities, then, yeah, i say a public adjuster might be the only way to go. There's not that much difference between a public adjuster and a plaintiff's attorney. So um, increasingly, I think public adjusters are going to be used as people realize that the insurance company doesn't really have their interest at heart
1: anymore. Marty, I'm going to have Cliff ask one more question, then I want to let the people out there that are going to be on the Roundup know. After this question, we're going to go to the Roundup and keep keep you on the line, if you don't mind.
2: Right. Marty, if you had a water damage in your own house, I'm kind of interested in who you're going to hire to dry it. Are you going to hire the guy with the biggest machine? Are you going to hire the guy with the fanciest equipment? Uh, what's going to be your thought process in determining who you're going to give the project to You know, dry the home that you've lived in and raised your family and have a lot of valuable stuff in it?
3: Well, I've had a, I had a water damage <laughs>
2: uh,
3: and essentially I took care of it myself right, uh, with the help of a local restoration company. But so far as a general rule of thumb is concerned, it's my opinion that you dry water damage as quickly as possible with oversized equipment probably. Uh, just get it dried in a hurry and not worry about many of the fine details, uh, vapor pressure, dew poison. Put in excessive equipment, dry it out in a day or two at the most, and then let the person start putting things back together. I look at a lot of problems after they get to the point where they're in litigation or they're in formal appraisal, and time after time, when it's water damage, there was insufficient equipment installed to handle the problem properly at first. Mold problems. Many of the uh, extended damage problems, the long restoration, of, come only from under-drying initially. So that my personal approach is, would be to put in double or triple the capacity you need, dry it completely in a day or so, and move
1: on. Sounds like the uh, Lance Weaver school of drying. Lloyd Weaver. Lloyd, I'm sorry. He told us he just... Put equipment in until the electric wouldn't handle it anymore. Yeah, until he blew a fuse and then he <laughs>
2: took one out. That's how he knew how to size yeah, I, the equipment. I, I,
3: I've seen water damage claims drag on for two or three years. That could have been resolved in two days and proper drying, appropriate drying been done. It's false economy. Right. Very often.
1: Pete? You with us? Yeah, I'm any, here, Joe. any follow-up or questions for Marty yeah, or any comments? Yeah, I, I got one.
4: One small follow-up, and then I, I have, a, I have kind of a, a question that I'd like to address to Marty, which I actually think once I throw that out on the table, it may stimulate some comment from Peter, and and certainly I know it will from Cliff. Marty did in in the part of the discussion in the second part of the interview, uh, he did talk had brought up the fact of. Um, you know the industry's need or I can't remember exactly what he said as far as uh, having some kind of a standardized forms that the industry could use um, when dealing with the customers to take on restoration projects and that that is a need that um, that the association RAA is felt uh, is there similar to the architects have an AIA form and in the construction industry there's a lot of forms and the association is working on that and that's kind of a I think an initiative that works in conjunction with the cost accounting and also standardizing terminology um, and that's I think that's part of uh, kind of the maturing of the industry if you would so th- those are things which uh, which are uh, are happening and I think there's a need for them my question really to throw out here almost really just to the entire group is that um, there was a little bit of discussion in, in the interview today talking about um, some exposures and uh, pot- potential hazards when dealing with the uh, restoration projects and different types of residues that would be encountered by both the technician and even the customers or an insurance adjuster walking on a job site. And I guess if I had to summarize it into the three ones that get the most press, or two that really get the most press, and one that probably doesn't get the respect that it should, the Rodney Dangerfield, is is mold, obviously, is the, is the hot one. And even though it's not as hot topic as it's been in years past, it's still pretty hot out there. And the other one is sewage, and that's starting to kind of get to be a hot topic. And they all directly relate to the to, to you know the 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 effectiveness of drying or how quickly you respond to drying. So my question is when you look at mold, when you look at sewage, I, I'd like to have Martin address from his perspective what he thinks the risks are and is the industry overreacting, underreacting, where do we, you know, need to go with that. But then really talk about kind of the Rodney Danger field of the residues of the soot and the smoke and all those residues that are created after a variety of different type of fires and quite frankly there's probably been very little interest given to that and um, you know I'm not an expert in, and maybe Dieter has some experience in this from some of the papers he's reviewed and IAQ issues but it would seem to me that there's there's some there's some pretty bad stuff in a lot of these fire residues and the industry's really not probably addressing that or looking at that uh, in the perspective of the law so that that's my roundup question to the, to the group okay let's throw it out let's go to Marty first
3: uh, well, uh, as so far as the relative toxicity of, of sewage, or mold, or fires, uh, I think you have to give the vote to sewage, because sewage can kill you quickly. Right. Mold takes a little longer. And of course, fire residues, once the fire's out, they take longer still. Uh, I personally don't like the idea of over, uh, of over technology and of making, uh, making these things more complex than they really are or need to be. And there's always really a tendency to do that. It's been done with water damage. And in my, in my opinion, has been done with mold. Uh, I just assume not see that happen with fire damage, where it starts getting treated as a toxic hazard, uh, which has never been established. Okay. In fact, the contrary has been established. So uh, I would kind of resist uh, the over-specialization of those things. Let's uh, see. Uh, my contribution at the moment. All
1: right. Thanks for that, Marty. Let's see if we can get Glenn Feldman in for a moment. Glenn, are you on the line?
3: I am on the line.
1: Glenn, sorry we didn't get to you sooner, but uh, le- any comments or any additions to that?
4: You, you know, I, I'm not going to add to that conversation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go off on a tangent, if you don't mind. No problem. The show's about to wrap up here. It's your 75th anniversary show. Is that correct? That's yeah, right. That's... Uh, you know, isn't it amazing that it coincides that last year was the Steelers' 75th season? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what the connection is. Oh no, congratulations, guys, on on 75 great uh, great episodes, and and I look forward to to hundreds and hundreds more. And uh, and I like to say it's been a pleasure to listen to Marty King. Marty, you're a, a gentleman and a scholar and someone I've been privileged to say I've known for for many years, and uh, and I appreciate all your good work to the industry. So, great show, guys, and I'll let you go back to the roundup.
1: Thanks, Glenn. Glenn. Appreciate it. I'm going to just turn it over to Cliff and see if he had anything he wanted to add.
2: Actually, um, I probably got a couple. Martin, um, oftentimes insurance adjusters want to refer to the the, the contents cleaning work or structure cleaning work as as maid service. Uh, Could you comment on that? And then I've got one closing comment. Yeah, well,
3: the maid service indicates how little the insurance industry understands about restoration. Uh, It's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like inviting the local butcher uh, to do heart surgery. (laughs) 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 But they, since it's someone else's property, they don't seem to have any reservations about having a maid service. Uh, which essentially is unskilled labor, uh, handle things that require some skill. And one of the sad truths of the matter is that from a dollars and cents standpoint, they're probably right. The number of losses that they would sustain using maid services probably would be less than the money they saved by using a maid service. But the fact is, it's not a professional service. And also the fact is, they're not bringing in maids. They're simply saying, we will pay the restorer a maid service rate for doing what the restorer normally does for a much higher rate. So it's really not so much a question of them bringing in maids. It's a question of them using that as an excuse uh, for lowering the rate, and if the scores go along with that, then they have to, you know, they deserve what they get. Because <laughs> if you're going to let yourself be devalued by being called a maid, uh, then, you know, that's your affair.
2: My, my, my final comment, Marty, how does it feel to be so respected by your students and your industry peers that they name one of the association's most prestigious awards after you while you're still living?
3: Well, it's nice to be appreciated, but I usually get the feeling that there's been a huge mistake made
4: <laughs> to
3: have someone else uh, in mind. Uh, and, and so I generally have a, a somewhat uneasy feeling about the whole affair. Uh, but as I say, it's, not, it's nice to be appreciated, but uh, like, so far as having the award named after me, uh, it was named after me because they thought I was being booted out of the industry. <laughs> they to do something nice, but I would go back to Woody Allen's comment when they someone asked him whether he wouldn't didn't want to live on in the memories of his audience, and he said, well, I'd rather live on in my apartment.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, w- we've got a couple more pages of questions. You need to before we let you off, we, we need to get you to promise us that you'll come back sometime in the future and we can talk
1: to you again.
3: I'm delighted to join you again in the future. Thank you so well, much. Thank you. Okay.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Nice. Okay. All right. Well hey I want to say thanks to this week's guest, Marty King, and also to Pete Consigli and also known as the commish. I also want to thank my co host, the Z Man, Cliff All, Slotnick. Always a pleasure. And we'll thank Glenn Feldman as well. Glenn Feldman for joining us. Uh, Chris Boisel, the Wingman. All right. And most important, we want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for broadcast number 76 of IAQ Radio.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed, saying thanks for listening.